This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. I feel like we went a little bit into like smoking. That was a great discussion. Yeah, I like that. What is authentic, that's, man? That's, that's, I totally did. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap House for May 30th, 2019, the Freedom Gas Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. Joining me electronically, psychologically, is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, Yale Law School, and the book Charged. Emily, you have too many titles. We have to ditch one of them. Pick one. It's summer. We can ditch Yale for the summer. Hey, Nice em- to see you. Emily's in New York, I think. Yep. Not joining us this week is John Dickerson. He is uh, who knows where. He's off somewhere. And in his place, after a long hiatus back on the GabFest, Julia Yaffe, GQ correspondent. Julia is also working on a book about Russian women. Welcome back to the GabFest, Julia. She's with me in D.C. Hello. Hello. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I know you've been missing that. That's, is that all I get? Is that the? Uh... No, I give you later. Okay. Great. On this week's show, the European parliamentary elections. What do they portend for geopolitics and for American politics, if anything? Then the Trump administration escalates its war on climate science. Why, 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 why would they bother? Why are they so retrograde and wicked about this? And then the catastrophe at Mount Everest and what it tells us about travel in the modern age and the Instagram age. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, we've got two live shows coming up on Saturday, June 8th at 2 o'clock at the SVA Theater in Chelsea. We're going to do a live show as part of Slate Day. Nicole Hannah-Jones is going to be with us on that day for that show. And She uh, is a colleague of mine at the New York Times Magazine and writing a forthcoming book about school desegregation. Everyone's got a forthcoming book except me and you, Emily, because you're, your book is out I'm, yes. and I have nothing. <laughs> My book counts for a while, don't you think? It's not forthcoming and yet. And that's a day when there's going to be a Trump cast. There's going to be a Culture Gab Fest. There's going to be a Waves. There's going to be a mom and dad are fighting. There's going to be, I think, a Dear Prudence. There's going to be everything is going to be going on as part of Slate Day, and we're going to have our live show at 2 o'clock that day. So they're at slate.com slash live. You can get tickets for that. You can get tickets just for our show or all day passes for the, the Slate festivities, Slate podcast festivities. And then, dear ones, on July 10th, a Wednesday, we're going to be in Canada, in Toronto, at the Kerner Hall, at the, in the TELUS Center for Performance and Learning. And you can get tickets for that show, our first international show, at slate.com slash live. We hope to see you there. We hope to uh, enjoy enjoy talking about the Toronto Raptors NBA championship, which will have been won at that point. We can talk about that. So get tickets for that show on July 10th at slate.com slash live. So we're going to talk about the European Parliament, Julia. Sacre bleu, as we say in Europe. <laughs> why would we talk about the European Parliament? We never, why is that, why, why now? Why should we talk about it? It's like, a, it's, a, it's a forbidding, confusing, not particularly powerful international body that is thousands of miles away from here. Lots of umlauts. There are umlauts. 
Um, I think because we've been, Europe has been a really interesting space, right, for the last few years in the same way that America has been with the rise of the populist right and also the populist left and basically the hollowing out of the center and of traditional political institutions and just a kind of questioning in a way that we haven't seen of the uh, liberal American-led post-Cold War order, the transatlantic alliance, et cetera, NATO, EU, why do we need these things? They seem to be costly. They seem to be bureaucratic. They seem to bind nations in way they don't, ways they don't like or not give them they the autonomy they want. They seem world wars. Continue right. On. No, I think, I think that's, you know, as veterans die off and memories recede into, you know, the dusty corners of our bookshelves, um, people start thinking, well, why do we need this thing anyway, right? It's like the Ruth Bader Ginsburg dissent when um, conservatives on the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. She said, because they said, you know, well, it works so we can get rid of it. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg said it's like uh, closing an umbrella in the rain because it's, it works at keeping you dry. So uh, I think the uh, the weeks, um, it was Sunday, the European parliamentary elections, as complicated as they are, were an important barometer and kind of weather vane to see what was, ha everybody was watching to see what would happen with the with the right, whether it would be a big wave, uh, whether they would be contained, and kind of to see where Europe is going, whether liberal democracy has been uh, save to live another day or whether it was, you know, continuing to die and li or live on life support. So, Emily, it seems like there's not really an answer to that question. It's, it's so the far right parties didn't have a sweeping victory, but nor did the center parties were damaged. And the, there's this rise on the left of the Green Party in particular and, and other and other liberal parties. But so is there a message in there? Is there is there anything that we can take away that sort of that that is a harbinger of anything or is it more like well we we're still in the state of not knowing anything I mean the message is about heightening the contradictions isn't it that voters wanted to choose more stark alternatives and in that sense i think it was a threat to the established order but i'm not sure if it's a bad threat or if it's like a healthy development on the left that people are moving toward the green party and the liberal party which they saw as offering a more clear alternative to the right it really depends on the leadership of those parties and the position they wind up taking in this order. And I feel like it's early days to know. But one thing I thought was really important was that turnout was way up across Europe. So the sense that this parliament of the EU, which is separate from the national government of the member countries, that that matters and has its own um, identity and effect on people's lives. That seemed like a positive development. And I mean, maybe I'm oversimplifying here, but I wonder if it is itself a product of Brexit and other major challenges to the EU that people start thinking like, OK, I need to pay attention to what this body does, because as Julia says, it is terribly bureaucratic and and, mo and has largely uh, gotten a reputation for kind of tiny little regulations that drive people crazy as opposed to all of the important things that it does to to keep Europe moving along as a whole to regulate 
you know, the euro to protect human rights. Like the EU is doing some important things. Laughing it off and dismissing it, I think, really is an error. And doing important work on climate change. But going back to your earlier point about uh, world wars, there was an interesting survey put out just ahead of the uh, elections by the European Council for Foreign uh, ECFR. And they found that there was a a huge chunk of people in, in the big European countries, Spain, France, Germany, Poland, that saw it as realistic. Like they they felt that a war between two EU countries was now realistic, which is a huge change from where we were before. And I also, back to your point about Brexit, I think we've seen this, we've seen this happening uh, ever since the mess that is Brexit has been kind of snowballing and snowballing and snowballing in the North. Um, It's made people on the continent kind of realize what it, and in Ireland and Scotland realize what it is they have and what they don't want to lose, which is kind of what I think a lot of the turnout was about, which is, you know, um, you don't know what you have till it's gone. (laughs) I have that exact exact line in my notes, (laughs) but you didn't sing it. Um, You don't want me to sing it. Are you going to sing it for us, David? No, no, no. You should. No, we don't want David to either. Not really. Do you, I mean, Julia, (laughs) do you think it is that, so, so Europe has been prosperous. It's been peaceful. It's been protected, and of course, it you know it's there's been structural unemployment. You have this huge amount of migration. There's this you know rise of religiosity, the sort of Islamic religiosity that people find threatening. Um, but people just don't remember how bad it can be, right? Yeah, and that's, I, I, and that's why they're voting for things which ca- which would cause the fracture. Yeah, I think um, this is the. Big difference, for example, between the way the Russian mentality and the Western mentality. Russians always know it can get worse because the wor- really bad times are pretty recent for them and pretty constant. Whereas people in the West always think it can get better and better and better. And for them, it's not a compelling argument to say, you know, it could get a lot worse. They, you know, unless they see it and feel it, they're looking optimistically into the future, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But it does, I think, lead to some people being spoiled. I think we had that issue here in the States, too, in 2016 of people saying, all right, well, we just we, we just want to break the system. We just want to flip the table over because they haven't ex- experienced the really, really bad times recently. And they, you know, they feel kind of spoiled and comfortable testing those limits. I do want to say, though, what what's really interesting about the European elections on su- that happened on Sunday is kind of if you look at it in a wider context, um, you also had, for example, the um, sweeping victory of Narendra Modi in India for his second term. And I think what you're seeing is the kind of that that this far right nationalist populist wave is not a wave anymore. It's here to stay. It's now part and parcel of the fabric of the body politic of most big democracies in the world, uh, including ours. You know, um, I remember the year after Trump was elected being at a national security conference at Halifax and a Republican kind of neoconferencing, saying, because everybody around was like, well, you know, after Trump, we'll just get back to business as, as usual and it'll all be fine. And this friend said, you know, it's kind of like watching, you know, the Russian whites hanging out in Paris in 1920 being like, oh, those Bolsheviks will be gone in about a year and then we'll just get back to business as usual. Like there will be no more business as usual. Things have drastically changed. And, you know, the far right and the far left and these these kind of populist movements, I think, are going to be with us for a long time and are now part of these political systems. Given that, I wonder a lot about whether 
which system is better? Like, is it better to have multiple parties where you can see the fracturing and fragmentation happen? People can choose their allegiances. New coalitions and leaders can more easily rise. Or is our system where these divisions then get kind of, if not papered over, at least contained within our two-party structure, is that better or worse? And I, I mean, I guess the question is, like, what does better or worse even mean? Because the impulse and the sort of constituency is still there, right? And I think you can argue that um, a smaller party that represents the far-right interest also sort of cabins it off from the rest of the system, whereas in our country right now, those interests have taken over the Republican Party to a strong degree. Isn't that the obvious answer, that it's much better when when you can have a distinct party and it's visible and people can can identify it clearly and not just not just make it part of half of the well system. and and that they have to form coalitions and cut deals with each other and you know for kind of very clear legislative priorities but as you as we saw in Israel yesterday these are very unstable forms of government and you can have elect- elections happening you know at the drop of a hat which maybe is not a bad thing. These like three-year election right. cycles that we have are really, frankly, pretty exhausting. Emily, you began by talking about the decline of the centrist party and the, the rise. So you have this gains made, some gains made on the far right by nationalist, populist far right parties and significant main gains made on the left, primarily by the Greens and then kind of liberal parties. And the center left and center right parties, sort of social Democrats, Christian Democratic parties in the center are the ones that eroded. I that does not feel to me like a good news at all. Like I, I, I just right. you when you lose the sort of institutional history, the institutional counterweights, the the kind of the the forces of stability. Even if you're losing it to the left, and I'm sure I'm sim- more sympathetic to what the Greens want than I am to what the Christian Democrats want or to what to sort of center right parties want. But you you just make when you radicalize things, when you heighten the contradiction, there's a this possibility that something breaks in a significant, dangerous way, in a way that it doesn't when when the sort of center, the clumping, glumping, glumping, dreary center is dominating things. Right. Yeah. I knew that you would feel that way. I think there's a way in which like centrism is comforting, right? Because it means that we're not going to have dramatic change of one form or another, that the clumping will uh, adhere around the status quo. And then the question is just like, how tenable is that really? Is the status quo being threatened by these global forces of immigration and climate change in a way that you could see just over the horizon? And so it makes that establishment tendency just feel way unsatisfying for a large percentage of the electorate. Yeah. And that right. Like if it's not speaking to people, it's not going to win. That's how politics work. So like mourning, it feels like mourning a set of conditions that have undermined it or mourning, you know, the horse and carriage because, it, you know, you're kind of used to it. But if it, it wasn't answering, like Emily said, if it wasn't answering the demands of the electorate and was so glumping that it couldn't in any way adapt to this uh, political reality that you needed a Green Party kind of coming in and doing something that a center-left party could have easily done, then that's an indictment of them. It's not like this meteorological phenomenon that just kind of befell them. Well, but but it's also that the people, I mean, people are fickle and susceptible to to charismatic leadership and susceptible to to fun populist ideas. And that's, that's 
That doesn't necessarily mean that that that's really what's happening. I mean, is that clearly what's happening? And I guess also, are we sure that if leaders like Silvani in Italy and Marine Le Pen in France, who are the they are the the ones who gained the most, as far as I can tell, on the far right, like. Do they is it helpful to have strong, charismatic counterparts on the left? Like, do you need to beat them at their own game? I'm not sure. I also think um, I I do, though, agree with your point about, you know, the polarization. I think that seems to be the theme uh, emerging from these elections is the fragmenting, the further and further fragmentation of the space that is becoming more and more complicated. Look at all the electoral maps of all the uh, constituent countries, and you see how how people are drifting toward the polls, to the various fragments at the polls, away from the center, and that does make things a little bit more unstable. Where whereas to Emily's earlier point about you know our system. Uh, even though the kind of radical, um, let's say, nationalist, white nationalist right has seized the Republican Party because of the kind of the way our country works, it's still basically on autopilot with some, you know, egregious changes, policy changes on the margins. You have foreigners watching a country, they're like, you're, you're pretty good at autopilot because I think that you have two big parties constantly kind of canceling each other out. Hmm. So you 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 think that the... The slow-moving nature of American politics makes it less less susceptible to these changes, just because you can't get anything done, so things just kind of continue as they are. Maybe, maybe I think um, you know, unless this president really insists on crashing the plane into the mountain, which he really <laughs> seems to want to do sometimes. But uh, political playbook had a, an interesting little ditty a couple a uh, couple days ago, or maybe last week. Uh, about what the, con- you know, when the Congress went into recess for Memorial Day, the things they had gotten done since they were, you know, sworn in in January. And it was like five or six things. They like renamed a highway. They gave some guy a medal. And that was it. Right. And this was yeah, but that but was Julia, like a big. I feel like that autopilot is short term and it totally uh, it's not a good thing. I mean, autopilot is not, n- not necessarily a good thing. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think that kind of evidence of autopilot, I'll take it. But I also think there's a way in which if you look at the medium to long term, there are these quite earth shaking changes happening. Totally. Um, We are about to talk about one of them in our second topic. And we just can't see the ramifications of them clearly yet. Right. So like the feeling of autopilot might be a kind of false sense of security. Oh, I don't uh, I don't get me wrong. I don't think it's a positive thing. I think it's it's just what we have as the kind of. Uh, the counterpoint, at least in this conversation, to the fragmentation, polarization happening in Europe, which seems a lot more chaotic than what we have, whereas our our situation is also plenty chaotic. All right. Last question on this uh, to either of you is people say that the, the election of 2016 was portended, of course, by Brexit, but also by the elections in Italy, by things that were starting to take place in Hungary even back then. Uh, is there anything that you see in this 2019 European election that is a harbinger for what's going to happen in 2020? Uh, I think we'd be foolish to think that Donald Trump doesn't stand a very good chance at being reelected in 2020. And even if he, even if he isn't reelected, I think the effects he's had on the American system, the changes he has wrought. Um, including to the Republican Party, as well as to American institutions, is indelible. And there's no, like I said, there's no going back to pre-2016 business as usual. 
That's well said. I mean, I think also these underlying forces of immigration and social change and increased heterogeneity and how white people who've been in power respond to it. Those are the crucial questions in both places. And we're going to continue to see them play out in these next elections. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest, other Slate podcasts and Slate Plus members. Today, you're going to get our reading list, our watching list, what we're going to be consuming culturally this summer. Think about that. The We're going to give you so many hot tips. Isn't that worth your Slate Plus membership to get all the hot tips that we're going to give you about what we're going to be consuming culturally this summer? So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. An amazing press release made its way from the bowels of the Trump administration this week from the Department of Energy. They sent out a press release about natural gas production, which has been rising in the United States. And they said that it's spreading freedom gas throughout the world. The Trump administration has renamed natural gas Freedom Gas, which is amazing, a euphemism, a, a kind of neologism of the very highest order of propaganda. And it comes, of course, from an administration that is hell-bent on attacking climate science, rolling back any constraint on fossil fuel production, gas production. So we've seen an extraordinary array of attacks on climate science in recent weeks, um, just to name a few, they've they are remaking the national climate assessment. They hit it hit its release to begin with. Now they're changing what information is going to be in the national climate assessment. The USGS is barred. They have barred scientists from discussing any outcome that is past 2040 because uh, most of the bad outcomes of climate change you really start to see after 2040. So they figure if they just talk about things that happen in 2030, people won't think it's so bad. There's a proposal to literally bar discussion of worst case scenarios from government documents, keeping in mind, of course, that most of these worst case scenarios are actually not even worst case scenarios. They're sort of status quo scenarios. The Department of Agriculture is relocating 
researchers who work on climate science from Washington, D.C. to another unnamed city, giving them almost no notice and just telling them you got to move or leave your job. So it's a way of driving people out of their job who are doing research on important issues. Uh, They've appointed a bizarro named William Happer to run a National Security Council operation to deny that climate change is a national security threat. Happer is a person who compares the demonization of carbon dioxide to the demonization of Jews under Hitler. And of course, the administration is working at every turn to increase fossil fuel production. So Emily, what is the purpose, do you think, of this multi-pronged attack on climate science and the the kind of truth that human behavior and, and in particular what we are doing uh, with fossil fuels is radically and quickly and dangerously reshaping the climate of the world. I mean, this is the assault on the government's perhaps most important function, which is to collect and disseminate true information and uh, present data in a neutral scientific way that is divorced from politics. And it's for a long time been perhaps my deepest fear about the Trump administration. The the realm of climate is an incredibly important one because this national assessment we produce is one of the documents the world relies on to be the most comprehensive and thought through. It's also tied to the attack on the census that the Trump administration is carrying out. There's a new crazy story today about the researcher whose hidden role has just come to light because he died and uh, it turned out he didn't destroy all his documents. Um, So you can go read about that. Um, It turns out that the suspicions that people challenging the addition to the citizenship question to the census had about its genesis are true, and that this guy, whose name is Thomas Hofeller, was playing this crucial role in looking at how... uh, Asking the citizenship question, changing the way we district to base it on um, only citizenship populations would help Republicans gerrymandering. Anyway, I've gone down a rabbit hole. But the point is, there are all these crucial functions the government plays in simply disseminating information. And when you start moving toward politicizing that data collection, making it unreliable, you're engaging in a really serious kind of disinformation campaign that we see from totalitarian regimes. And, you know, I'm sure people on the right will poo-poo this. It's not as if there's never been politicized data collection in the history of the U.S. government. But any creeping we do in that direction is really alarming. So. Julia, you know from politicized uh, totalitarian data collection um, from from where you were born and and spent your a bit of your childhood. But do you, why climate science? Why is it why is it so important to to lie and distort and and uh, undermine the foundation of of truth around climate science? In this administration, especially, I think there are several things happening. First of all, I think people have sensed correctly that Trump doesn't really understand, let alone care about policy specifics, and that, you know, the last person who talked to him and made a compelling case using his name as often as possible in sentences and using pictures is the one whose case he's going to go with, especially if there's money involved, Um, and that his administration has been permeated by the kind of ideologues that have been growing on the right for a really long time, especially on the issue of climate many of whom have been funded by the natural gas, petroleum industries. And this is kind of like their golden opportunity to come in there and, you know, say Trump, 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 here are some pictures while they implement the kind of 
their kind of best case, our worst case uh, policies that are just kind of comically evil. Uh, the other thing I think when you when you see the messaging of it, especially on social media, conservative social media, is there's I feel like there's a huge element of owning the libs. It's like let's destroy the planet to own the libs because they're all so upset about it. Like uh, if you look at all the memes on Instagram or Twitter from conservatives about straws and how you know us liberals sitting in cities are just obsessed with straws, whereas they're thinking about real things like jobs and aren't we so silly? I remember there was a study that came out recently about how um, neighborhoods where more black families live, there's more asthma, the air is more polluted. And I saw a lot of conservatives making fun of this. They're like, oh, my God, the crazy liberals are saying air is racist. Like, what will they think of next? And yeah, I think a lot of it is to troll us, which is unfortunate because their kids are going to drown in the rising seawater sea as well. I mean, it's, I mean, it's 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 not funny. It's like sick that it comes at a time when we have this massive flooding in the Midwest and this record tornado outbreak. And the tornado outbreak is, I mean, that's climate change is here. That is that is truly yes. a result of- Yeah, we're like of, in the change. Hollywood phase of climate change, right? Where like every weather event is like a Hollywood movie and like The Rock or Schwarzenegger should come in and save us from the fire. Well, one of the things that I find so weird is that there is a perfectly, there is a perfectly legitimate conservative- and Republican take on climate change. And you, we see it from every other conservative party across the world where where this denial of science hasn't taken place, which is to say, this is really happening. There are costs and trade-offs. We have to think about them. Let's pursue, you know, R&D policies. Let's work on, you know, finding ways to remake markets, study geoengineering. Let's do anything. Like, there are plenty of ways to not deny what's going on and to still maintain some kind of integrity an attachment to to conservative principles, but I do think Julia, your point is right, which is that like the the pleasure of just attacking Obama, owning the libs. I mean, don't you guys remember that that bizarre micro phenomenon of a few years ago called rolling coal, where people would get their trucks and they would create trucks that would pollute extra with black smoke, and your tr- your truck would drive around and it would be pouring black smoke out, and the Ha-ha. idea and the idea was like. <laughs> I don't give a fuck, man. Good, fuck bring you. it on. I'm like, this is awesome. Look at how cool my truck is. And it was just, what's the fucking point of that? Except to, except to cause, except to, to well, irritate I, people. But it's also like, what is the point of the Trump administration rolling back healthcare benefits, government healthcare benefits that uh, help their their constituents? You know, the West Virginia coal mi- miners dying of black lung, like. What's the point of that? To own the lips? Okay, owned. I don't know. Um, Isn't there though just like deep pockets behind all of this? I mean, yeah. Oh, sure. I think they're both. I think there's both things happening. I think the you know owning the lips is like the kind of social media messaging that they that makes it go down easy. Yes, agreed. I think though also there are just these big companies making a lot of money by continuing with. Um, extractive industries. And the difference between the conservatives in other countries you were talking about, David, and the Trump administration is that, like, we are actually increasing those emissions, right? And and welcoming people to make money by adding carbon dioxide to the air. I mean, our Secretary of State went up to the Arctic Circle and talked about all the economic opportunities that will come from the ice melt. So if that's your stance, then it's 
completely logical to want to stop the government from producing the data that says that what you're doing is totally destructive and not economically productive, right? And then there's also this underlying legal rationale here, which is that the Trump administration is trying to roll back the steps that the Obama administration took to reduce the emission of carbon dioxide. In order to do that, you have to go through this complicated rulemaking. And if your own agencies are saying, wait, wait, your claims about the consequences of these actions are not true based on your own reports, that's a problem in the courts. So if you change those reports so they no longer contradict the actions you want to take, that is supremely helpful. And I feel like there's the real internal logic to this that is um, also just deeply serious. Are the only countries where there is there's like a serious amount of climate science denial countries with strong extractive industries? So I think I mean the United States obviously has it. Australia has a strong climate denial, even though the Australian climate is being utterly ruined, um, but also has a strong extractive industries. But that they that there can other and Russia. I, well, Russia is actually an interesting point. There, you know, I think they would agree with Pompeo on yes, let's melt the Arctic because there's a lot of oil and gas under there. That said, they don't have the technology to extract it. Uh, that said, they've been very kind of they've been they've been hedging their bet on climate and seeing kind of where things will go because they don't also. Uh, apparently, unlike the United States these days, they don't want to be left behind. And the movement in the rest of the world is definitely not in this direction. I mean, we've see, we see these countries that are still party to the Paris Accords talking about banding together to, in fact, ramp up their response to this. We saw, for example, in our first topic, you know, the Greens doing super well. And one of the countries in which they did the best was Germany, which was, uh, you know, also has coal mining regions, which is Europe's biggest economy. And one of their biggest winners were the, were the Greens who said, you know, we want to make, and especially it was young people in the city saying, we want to make climate change a priority. This is a burning priority for us. We have to live with this. And it just seems like we're one of the few countries that are this retrograde. Well, it's so depressing because there's actually an incredibly strong economic innovation R&D case to be made that this is a this is a place where you would want to make national investment and where there's a ton of money to be made. And there's no reason why Elon Musk isn't like a, a Republican. Like all these all these people could be Republican. If the Republicans would just open their party and say, yeah, we're going to be the ones who we're going to pour R&D money so that we become the world leaders in solar. We're the world leaders in wind. You know, we're the world leaders in a better grid. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a huge economic opportunity, but the only – the only industry that we're betting on in this country is are these extractive industries, which basically are not even that innovative. They're not innovative at all. They're just particularly good at taking things out of the ground. They're not building and lobbying jobs and, and capturing and, and they're very good. the government. They're good, right. It's capture. And it's, it's, so it's, it's the opposite of the of what you would want a functioning market economy to be and that what, what conservatives should want. And it's very frustrating. I don't understand why there isn't a stronger movement within the Republican Party to say actually – like this is a great economic opportunity for the United States, for business, for American businesses and American know-how and American engineering. It's just not there. It's weird and depressing. Isn't the answer, doesn't the answer have everything to do with this idea of limiting the assessment to 2040? It's all about short-term versus long-term consequences, right? If you're thinking only about the next election, only about these short-term time ramps, then what the Republicans are doing makes perfect sense. And I think 
one thing that seems utterly clear about Donald Trump is that he is all about the short term. He's going to be long out of office when the chickens really come home to roost on climate. And cutting off the assessment at 2040 is like the perfect last gasp thing to do if you are in favor of these extractive industries, right? We can all see the reality around us and the military and the insurance industry, people who really have a stake in the destabilization to come, like they have to plan for it. But somehow the federal government can overall try to pretend that it's not happening. So last question here. What do you think, Julia, the Democrats should do politically about the degradation of climate science by the Trump administration. Do you think it's, is it a political issue that that has legs? Should they not bother with it? Is it too arcane because it's just bureaucratic hoo-ha? Well, I think it's not just that it's uh, arcane and bureaucratic hoo-ha. I think um, I think people are increasingly caring about climate because you know it's here. It's not just in Bangladesh anymore. It's here. It's in California. It's in Oklahoma. On the other hand, there's so many, you know, pardon the pun, there's so many burning, other burning political fires that I think people can kind of hardly keep up. There's abortion, there's corruption, there's, I mean, just the kind, the crazy racist, xenophobic, Islamophobic things Trump says on, on a daily basis. Uh, that, and that thinking past 2040, I think, for a lot of people is uh, really hard. And I wonder, if, uh, going back to Emily's last point is if one of the things that's going to happen is that a lot of the science becomes kind of private, that the insurance companies are the ones who are going to be commissioning these studies that the U.S. government should be doing, or the, you know, the military starts doing its own stuff, or, uh, you know, universities but continue when putting When science is private, it's no good anymore, because people don't trust it, and people hide the science that isn't favorable to what they want to show. So the whole point about the government Science right. is no, no, no. I know, but but I mean, public I think, and universal. I'm not saying that it's good, but it could still I'm saying happen. like if that's what's if that's going to be the side effect is that it kind of goes goes elsewhere because people do need some kind of assessments. Well, it also moves more into international bodies, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're going to emerge as the more trustworthy actor. I think this is a really good political issue for the Democrats. I I mean, maybe I'm fooling myself, but I think. Like, it's not that hard to understand when the government is trying to lie to you. And there's this way in which it just feels fringy and conspiracy minded to be changing, to be monkeying with the way that we produce data. It just seems to me like that's something that could give people pause. What I worry about is they're going to break Department of Agriculture, they're breaking the EPA, Department of Energy, Interior, and the, the, the trustworthy science, you know, of NOAA and, and NASA and all the institutions that are doing the trustworthy science and they're going to break their ability to do it and it will not be easy to restore. That's the fucking tragedy here. Pardon my French. Hello, it is Ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Mount Everest. Not exactly a political topic, but we're going to make it so. So it's hiking season for Mount Everest. The spring is when you can summit Everest most easily. There have now been 11 deaths among the 1,100 people who have hiked on Everest, including nine on the Nepalese side. 
And it, these deaths are not because of bad weather. They're not because of storms that come in. In fact, there seems to be less of that than usual. This is not the John Krakauer into thin air tragedy that gripped us 10, 15 years ago. Instead, we have a traffic jam on Everest. We have a situation where there are too many hikers all lined up trying to get to the summit, and some of them are dying basically because they're sitting there waiting for too long. They're running out of oxygen on the way down. Uh, also, they don't know mis- what they're doing and are very inexperienced. Right. They're inexperienced. They're making stupid mistakes. They're working with trekking outfits that, that are that are a little bit fly-by-night. You know, on the one hand, it's there's something somewhat comical about it. The photograph that made its way uh, across the Internet this week of of this line of 100 people waiting to get to this to the summit of Everest just so they could get their Instagram selfie was one of the most shocking pictures that you, you'll ever see of nature. Um, uh, and, and it is, of course, all these, these are basically rich people. You can't climb Everest unless you're rich because it costs somewhere between twenty dollars and $50,000 to do an expedition. But what do, what I, I guess I, what I wanted to talk about this because I think it gets to sort of how we think about tourism, like and how we think about tourism in Instagram age, and how we think about the the rights of people to see the wonders of the world. And this is something I think about a lot because of the company that I run. Um, so Emily, let's start with the questions. So is it is 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 the villain here the Nepalese government, which has allowed more people? It's issued more permits this year than ever before. That it's allowed unscrupulous companies to operate. Uh, there's this amazing other whole fraud of helicopter rescue fraud where guides are getting their own hikers sick so that they can have helicopter evacuations because you make more money off of helicopter evacuation than you do on the actual hike. Is it So is the Nepalese government and Nepalese culture what's really to blame here? I think the Nepalese government bears no, some responsibility. <laughs> well, no, no. I don't think that's too simple. I think the Nepalese government bears some responsibility. On the other hand, whenever you have a poor developing country that is trying to get money from rich people who don't know what they're doing and seem like they are grasping for this summit without putting in what it takes to do that responsibly and safely, it becomes really hard for me to say, like, yeah, this is all on the Nepalese government. It's it's mostly on the rich people who are getting... Suckered isn't quite the right word even, right? I mean, I I guess it's unkind and unfeeling since people are actually dying at the top. But it does just seem like the writing is on the wall, that this is a bad set of conditions. And that if you've never hiked this kind of tall mountain before, that showing up at Everest without that kind of experience, without necessarily even knowing how to put the crampons on your feet, is something that obviously could put you in danger and other people around you. And the, the irresponsibility of that act is what I find myself staring hard at here. Well, I think The Onion, as always, recently had the best commentary, which was world populace actually fine with rich people dying on Mount Everest. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think Emily's right. And I think that, you know, it also goes back to your point about in our previous segment about the kind of short term versus the long term. I think that the Nepal- Nepalese government in trying to maximize this uh, you know, revenue right now to deal with burning issues that they have because they're a develop- poor developing country are not thinking about what damage this does to the long term to the mountain, to the tourism industry there. You know, if more people continue to die, how many people are going to show up next year to, you know, to hike this thing? Um, but I do. Well, get- more. But it doesn't I mean like all those people died a few years ago and the they'll thing. show up. Yeah. 
Right. Okay, the maybe that's what she of this. Okay. Yeah, I feel like the deaths almost add to the thrill-seeking, right? Mm-hmm. And that we've known for a long time, since John Krakauer's book at least, that the infrastructure of Everest cannot really support what's happening there safely. It's shaky. It's full of garbage. Like, When did this become a thing that like hundreds of rich people go and do at the same time as opposed to, I mean, I always thought climbing Mount Everest is, you know, for the, you know, the few, the train, the elite, as well, opposed to, you know, right. like I saw on Instagram, for example, anecdotally, um, a very rich acquaintance posting a uh, photograph of her brother saying, my brother is climbing Mount Everest to raise awareness for climate change. And I was like, <laughs> what the actual does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, watch yeah. me eat lunch as yeah. I raise awareness yeah. of, you know, world hunger. And it's just and like, by the when... way, my carbon footprint mm. will be very high this month. Exactly. Like, when did that become a thing that you just go and do? Or like Mandy Moore was up there. Did you see this? Mandy Moore yeah. made it up to base camp. And she was like, this reminded me that breathing is totally essential to life. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> A for real. Fact. For real. She was like, I'm going to bring this with me back to my daily life to rem- yeah. remind myself to breathe. <laughs> I'm going to bring a low oxygen environment, <gasps> my oxygen sickness back. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm really torn because I do think the travel, one of the things that's happening, and it, we especially see this in cities like Venice, Paris, uh, New, I mean, New York has this. Uh, Mount Fuji has become like this, where yeah. you just you go up the mountain in a big line. Be, yeah. People who have been there describe it as kind of yeah. an anthill, you yeah. know. And it's like, what is the yeah. point? You're just seeing other tourists. You're yeah. not seeing the actual thing, right? And tour, but and with the rise, particularly of the Chinese middle class, Indian middle class, there is this huge new group of people who can uh, travel and they what they want to, you know, they often what they're going to see because they can. Is they're going to see the famous sights of the world? So you see Venice, you see the Eiffel Tower, you see Mount Fuji, and and you it is it is wrong for us because we have all had the luxury of travel and come from a wealthy country and you know get vacation to to say to other people you do not you you're t- you are ruining travel. You're ruining it when with we your went, numbers and your we When we went, it was cool. And we were authentic. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, you can't, you cannot, and you cannot uh, wish them away. And you can't say, like, you're not entitled to have your travel experience. And also, it, we all know that, you're, that one's travel experiences are actually really important. It is very important to living a richer, fuller life to have cultural you know, experiences. Yeah, but there's tra- a difference between of course. going and taking yes. a selfie with the yes. Mona Lisa to yes. going up yes. Mount Everest. Right. That's what I'm saying. When did those two become kind of equivalent? Yeah. When? I don't know. That's a question. Well, for I think I think there's an Instagram culture problem here, mm-hmm. which is that they, that the that the marking it, the the ability to market, share it, identify it, put it down as a you know a record accomplishment, the bucket list quality has made certain activities. Uh, more important, relatively more important, and 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 the, and the status of it, like when you get the status of having done this, I was thinking about. Um, I mean, what, to me, what it all reflects is a kind of a failure of imagination, and I was struck by this on Atlas Obscura because we think about this all the time. We are highlighting the world's hidden wonders, and there's this, there's this. Uh, and I can't remember what country this is in, but but there's um, there's this waterfall, Iguazu, I think, waterfall, which is the most beautiful waterfall in the world, practically. And it's one that is just surrounded by, mobbed by tourists. It's South American waterfall. I think Paraguay, maybe. But like a couple miles away is another waterfall, which is called Salta de Monday. And it's- You've unbe- just ruined it. 
And I've well, it's <laughs> unbelievable. It's like it's it's like so if Iguazu is like the third most beautiful waterfall in the wall, world, this one is maybe the tenth most beautiful waterfall in the world. And you see it, and you're like, oh my god! But nobody goes to it because the whole everyone's like, oh, I, I got to go to the. I'm here. I got to go to Iguazu Fall. And what I feel like is happening is that there's this failure of imagination, this failure to recognize, like, you know, it's you don't have to summit Everest. You could summit something else. You could. There's like a lot of other eight thousand meter peaks that would be beautiful and challenging and you know yeah you wouldn't get you wouldn't have said i've summited everest but you'd have an authentic difficult challenging emotional experience doing it and where i feel like the problem the problem to me is not that is not that people want to go have these experiences is that they what they what is it their imagination about what is a is a cool experience is quite limited by what they've seen on instagram what they've seen on, on some tv show I don't know. I feel like that is kind of snobby and maybe letting the rest of us off the hook. It suggests that if you just take one step off the beaten track, then you get to go have your authentic experience at the 10th greatest waterfall and be a little haughty about it. And like, it's all well and good. I There's something about me that feels like there's a deeper question here to wrestle with about tourism and travel and going to see things as opposed to like, living with them in some way that makes them embed more deeply in the fabric of your life. But I realize in saying that, that I'm just betraying my own like discomforts about sightseeing. And, and of course I've had experiences too, where you do go one step off the beaten track. And part of the pleasure of it is you congratulate yourself on being like just but, off of the guide. But it's not about, way, be, but it's like, it's like not about discovery, but what it's not like about congratulation. It's about, it's, I mean, why would you even use the word "congratulate yourself"? Do you really congratulate I yourself? Because I think that is it's part of like, what people you do, do when you they think travel. You're authentic, they bag you're more experiences, yeah. and you're bragging about it when you come home. Like you have the experience in the moment, and part of it too is that you know you're going to get to tell people about it, and mm-hmm. that if you feel like you discovered something for yourself, that makes it just like so much cooler, right? And then money, of course, plays into this here, right? Like travel is the thing where the best experiences are either free or cost almost nothing, or they're incredible expensive and it's the middle that feels like you're getting ripped off and you're not quite sure what the point of this is but like the middle is where almost everything is uh, I just want to go back to your Instagram point and I I think Instagram has kind of amped it up but I think this existed before you know uh, with books and postcards I remember traveling as a kid and going to see for example these paintings or monuments or cities that we that I had read about in books or seen in picture albums and, you know, you go see the Notre Dame, you're like, oh, I, I've seen this. I've just seen, like, a really good quality photograph about uh, of this, and it's, like, kind of underwhelming. Or, like, you go see the Mona Lisa or, you know, the Doge's Palace in Venice, and you're like, okay. But that was, that was well before Instagram, before we had any of this online. I think Instagram has just kind of turbocharged it. But, right. I think that's right. That is That's certainly true. I mean, you, if you... I mean, that's what Baedeker was, is you took the Grand Tour. The Grand mm-hmm. Tour in the mm-hmm. 19th century right. was you would go to these places and you would check them off that you've been to these places. But Yeah, but the but, tour of Europe before was like only for the very, very rich. Now you just track the good flight option, you know, flight deals on any, you know, any travel site or airline and you can just hop over to Paris or London and see the Big Ben. And is So is the, it's not the Big Ben, it's Big Ben. That's oh, a, you're right. I'm so sorry. Big Ben. That's very Russian of you. Good thing you corrected her on uh, that, David. No, that I was, was just crucial. like, I was, you got no. like angry. You're like, <laughs> was, oh, excuse me. Next, you're going to be saying the Ukraine. 
Uh, I don't care about that one. <laughs> <laughs> but are you arguing, Emily? I mean, I, you cannot possibly be arguing that people shouldn't want to have travel experiences. That it's wrong for us to have travel and tourism experiences. No, I can't argue that. You're right. But I do recognize in myself this kind of queasy feeling about trips that I often worry that I'm intruding in some way. I'm not sure what the experience is. You know, when you're really being a tourist, most of the people you meet are part of the service industry in some way. So they're you're having an experience where it's your first time and they are the total repeat player who have dealt with a million people like you. And that tends to make me feel like a walking cliche. And then you're dealing with other tourists. Maybe you'll like them, maybe you won't. But it's this it's this created kind of fabricated um, bubble existence that I don't love it a lot of the time. And what I always want to do is like go live in a place and actually experience it and learn the language and all these things that are completely impossible but to even do that can in more be than a not couple to, of places. But that, but, so, that, wait, so then what's the point of travel, right? Is this what we're talking about? Like what is the point of travel? Well, there has to be yeah. a point in travel, right? Because David it has to be right that being like, I am going to stay in my city surrounded by people who are speak my language are more like me than the people of the other side of the world. Like that can't be the answer. Right. And yet I do struggle with this. But it's also the case that if you think of it, oh, this is a service person who's done this a million times before. Every time you go to a restaurant in New Haven, the waiter who's who's serving you is somebody who has served a million customers beforehand, but is still attempting to, you know, give you good service and try to have have you have a good experience. It's not so so the fact that somebody in in Italy who's showing you around their town has done it for a hundred groups before yours doesn't mean that they're not proud of it. It doesn't mean that what they're telling you isn't true. It doesn't mean oh, that they're absolutely of course I mean, that's right. But more hinges on it, right? Like in your own local restaurant. Like maybe you have a good meal, maybe not. Like it's just part of the fabric of your daily life. I think I just am a person who's more comfortable in that context, but then it's very limiting because then it might block you from travel, or you can only go travel if you have like months to spend in some other country, or you're gonna go back a million times so that you feel comfortable there. I'm not really sticking up for my own approach to this. I've just recognized my own queasiness. But even then, I think, you know, like what you said about going to live in a place and learning the language, even then you're not going to have necessarily a quote unquote authentic experience. I know lots of people who have lived in countries right. abroad and all the natives, Hung know, out with these, expats these, the whole time. these expats <laughs> will be there for two, three years. Right. What's the point of striking up a friendship with them when they're going to leave? And we have our friends from that we've known from kindergarten. What's the point? And right. you still live in a, in a bubble just in a different place. So, I mean, striving for this, you know, unreachable quote unquote authentic experience seems kind of um, pointless right but it, but it's not it's not fully pointless like it's not yeah. no you should strive but it is an for asymptotic kind of relationship yes. like you will never reach the kind of like the singularity exactly. of the authentic Yes, I think that's totally right. And the answer has to be that if you stay open to discovery and awe and appreciation of things that you've never seen before are different, those kind of innocent childlike responses are an amazing part of being a human being. And like, that's what you have to strive for. Forget authentic. It's just that feeling. And yet, like, it's just hard not to be self-conscious about it. Although, David, having traveled with you a bunch, you are actually very good at this. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, 
cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are at Mount Everest base camp and you're you're having a a high altitude, a high altitude bourbon and telling a story, what are you going to be chattering about, Julia Yaffe? Well, I think you'll be surprised to know that I'll be chattering about Russia-related cultural content. Um, So for those of you in the D.C. area, there is a play opening up at Woolly Mammoth uh, on Friday called Describe the Night. Based, uh, It's by an American, uh, Indian-American playwright, but it's based on Isaac Babel, who was a Russian-Jewish writer in the early Soviet period, was killed by the NKVD, and it based on his time uh, chronicling the Russian Civil War as a Bolshevik commissar uh, and parts that were very heavily Jewish in Western Ukraine and Poland, etc. So I've been catching up uh, rereading Red Cavalry by him, which is a really horrifying, beautifully written book. Also, I've been hearing about things from both sides of the Atlantic, from friends here in New York and LA and friends in Moscow and St. Petersburg about how great Chernobyl is. So when I'm done the the next chapter of my book, I'm going to sit down and watch that because I've heard really, really good things, um, which I think usually the people on the Russian side usually, you know, poo-poo American uh, versions of of their country, but they were saying really good things. And if you want any supplementary reading material for that, I highly recommend Svetlana Alexievich's Voices of Chernobyl. Uh, she won the Nobel, Peace, uh, Nobel Literature Prize in 2015. She's an incredible, incredible writer, and it's just kind of a collection of interviews and an oral history of Chernobyl that is just, um, you probably won't be able to sleep afterwards if you can sleep after watching the show. I just read, or I'm mid-reading Midnight at Chernobyl, the Adam Higginbotham book, which is also same subject as Chernobyl and those interviews, which I found totally gripping. 
Yeah. Have you read that or no? No, I haven't. But I was, um, lots of people have been asking me about Chernobyl and I happened to be with my mom the other night and I asked her, you know, if she remembered it. Uh, I was four, so I don't remember. We were living in Moscow at the time. She said she did remember, you know, first the rumors starting and then there was a big influx of people into Moscow fleeing Ukraine. Uh, there was fears that the nuclear cloud would go to Moscow. It didn't, but she said that for a long time afterwards, people would be selling fruits and vegetables in the street that were like, you know, strawberries the size of soccer balls, advertising that they were from Chernobyl, and people would buy them. Um, my mom was a doctor, so she was like, hell no. That's fascinating. I mean, there's so much good stuff, but both about the medicine and about how the information fl- in, the, in the Higginbotham book, how the information flowed out and mm-hmm. didn't flow out, and like at what point they decided to let people start talking and yeah it sounds horrible um emily what is your chatter i am thinking a lot this week about an amazing writer tony horwitz an amazing human being and writer who just died very suddenly and tragically during the book tour for his new book which is called spying on the south and which i have at home and was just diving into tony was a completely menschy person. I I have not met anyone who um, didn't just enjoy his company tremendously. He was a wonderful storyteller and just like interlocutor. Um, and the thing that um, that I will, I think, remember the most about him is that he used to write these. He was a Wall Street Journal reporter, I think in the 80s or 90s. And he wrote the feature in the journal that I love the most and really grow, grew up trying to emulate, which are these short kind of gem stories. They can be about anything. They're just supposed to be like a kind of unexpected surprise on the front page. Um, and a few of them had been circulating on social media since Tony's death. So I got to reread some of them. He wrote about this um, boat, that's entire purpose. This was, I think, in, uh, around the seas around Norway, was just to ferry people around where he got drunk. He wrote about the city of Glasgow, a greengrocer there that sold not one single vegetable and a fish and chicken place with no fish and no chicken. And the serious point he was making about Glasgow was that it was a place with a very unhealthy diet in which the food offerings were not helping people live or eat well. He just pulled it all off with an amazing, a deep reporting and an amazing sense of humor. And his wife, Geraldine Brooks, is one of my very favorite novelists. She wrote The Year of Wonder and the book March, which won a Pulitzer. I also left out Tony's Pulitzer from this um, hodgepodge of a set of memories. Anyway, so I also thank him for supporting Geraldine's work because it has given me just enormous pleasure. So terribly sad passing of Tony Horwitz. All right, my chatter is a double chatter today. Uh, First of all, I commend the documentary Knock Down the House. If you haven't had a chance to see it, it's a Netflix documentary about the primary campaigns of four women in 2018 running uh, as progressive Democrats against uh, less progressive Democrats. The main subject of it, however, is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Of course, we've heard so much about her since she's been elected, but this is catching her at the very beginning of her primary campaign and then through the primary campaign as she launched this quixotic and truly like seemed doomed campaign to unseat an incredibly powerful uh, Queens Democratic machine politician, Joe Crowley. And it's a fantastic documentary. And she is magnetic. I mean, we, of course, learned that from watching her in office, but she is an utterly compelling, fascinating, appealing person. And I think even people who may be skeptical of her will, will come away thinking, 
what a remarkable what a remarkable woman she is so i i and i absolutely urge you to stay to the end if you even if you don't like it skip ahead to the last 10 minutes because the the final couple of scenes um her victory party and then what happens afterwards are just really worth the whole movie so check out knock, knock down the house um and then a second chatter just i discovered something today which i'd never heard about which is absolutely fascinating and terrifying which is that there's this possibility that the entire river commerce of the United States, all of the Mississippi River commerce and everything that's attached to it is in danger. And it's in danger right now because of something called uh, the Atchafalaya River. The basic principle is that the Mississippi River currently flows through the Mississippi River down to you know, Baton Rouge, New Orleans, and to the ports uh, in, in Louisiana, and there's a huge amount of commerce on those ports. But the Mississippi River does not want to flow where it flows. The Mississippi River wants to flow down a different channel, which is the Atchafalaya River. And the U.S. government has spent billions and billions of dollars keeping the Mississippi from jumping its track and getting into the Atchafalaya. And if it does get into the Atchafalaya, the water levels in the Mississippi River will drop precipitously. The towns downstream from from where this jump happens will be flooded. There's very likely lots of natural gas, oil pipelines, electrical wires will be destroyed and wiped out. And it could paralyze the internal river highway of the United States for months, years, and maybe even totally unfixably. It's all maintained right now by a very precarious set of uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers facilities. And there's a bunch of writing that's been done about it. And it's frankly terrifying. It's like because it's it's one of these things which nature just wants to happen. And we are fighting nature from from letting it happen. So learn about the Atchafalaya Basin, which could be the disaster that that uh, crushes the American economy in, in this year or next year or in five years. Also, dear ones, we have listener chatter from you. You guys keep sending us great chatters every week, the things that you're talking about at your cocktail parties. Uh, you are tweeting them to us at, at Slate Gabfest or posting them on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Gabfest. And there was a lot of great ones this week. The person who sent me all the stuff about Taipei's infrastructure, I should say, that was uh, that was great. But we're not going to chatter about that. We're going to chatter about uh, from Mike J at at Nadraj80, N-A-D-R-O-J-80. And it's about uh, public housing in Vienna, Austria. And it turns out that in Vienna, Austria... There is a fantastic system of public and subsidized housing. And there's an article, The City That's Building an Affordable Housing Paradise, uh, about how Vienna is building this wonderful housing that is available to poor middle-class people throughout Vienna. And it's made the city uh, kind of economically mixed. And this public housing is beautiful. It's, you know, it's in great shape. People want to live there. There's tons of it. It's, it makes you think, wow, in a different way, in a different world, we could, have, we could have had different policies, and wouldn't that be nice? Do you know about this, Emily? Have you followed Vienna? I didn't know about it, but I also looked at the chatter, and it did look really different than what we do here, shall we say. Although it's one of these things which is in self in danger because there's so much anti-migrant feeling. And so as migrants move into – migrants, non-white migrants move into this housing – it's it's caused tension that Viennese don't like, and it's it's uh, you get the sense that this this um, tolerance and this 
openness and this willingness to build public housing for the poor middle class people may be tested once it's it's available to people who are not who are not white Austrians. Dismaying. That is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, Daniel Hewitt, engineered it here in Slate, D.C. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Special thanks to Brad Fisher at the New York Times for helping out Emily today. June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts, and Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest. Tweet chatter to us for Emily Bazelon, Julia Yaffe, and an absent John Dickerson. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Please come to our live shows. We'll be at Slate Day on June 8th in New York, and then we'll be in Toronto on July 10th. You can get tickets to both of those shows still at slate.com slash live. Hello, Slate Plus. It is uh, post-Memorial Day. You can now wear white again. Thank goodness. Although Emily is not wearing white, but Julia is wearing white. And I'm you're wearing, wearing your I'm boat wearing shoes. Gray. You're wearing your boat shoes, right? I'm wearing boat shoes. Yes, uh, <laughs> and Nantucket Reds. We're, t- we're, well, we're taping on the yacht as we <laughs> as we like to do in the summer. Uh, so here from the yacht. No, we're going to talk about um, summer summer culture. So one of the the pleasures of summer is to give yourself a chance to read things that you don't have time to read during the the busyness of the fall season, and to maybe watch things that that are a little bit lighter and more joyful. Um, so we're going to talk about. What, what culture we're planning to consume or looking forward to consuming uh, this summer. So I already mentioned one of the things which I'm going to finish up, which is the Midnight at Chernobyl, the Adam Higginbotham book, which I've really been enjoying. And I recommend if it's, it's very tense, it's not fun, uh, but it's kind of, it's not unfun because it, you know you know how it turned out and you know there's a limit to how bad it can be because you basically know what happened. So, and also no offense to the Russian in the room, but it's, that that whole idea of Russian fuck ups like of the eighties oh, is kind so of many. it's fun. It's oh, like, they keep quote, going past the eighties. Yeah. I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> and no spoil, you know, spoiler alert. Um, all right, so that's one thing. I'm looking forward to reading. My daughter just read the Ted Chang uh, short story on which the movie Arrival was based, and she said that was great. So I'm getting his short stories. We should talk about that book after you read it. Oh, really? Anyway, You've sorry. read it. You've read yeah, it, right? I read, read it. Yeah, yeah. Read no, no, I think it's going to be the beach read of the summer. Okay. Ooh, I think I'm I already excited. said on the show. Yes. Well, I'm excited to read it. But the two things that actually I'm most excited about is, uh, so I'm midway through Fleabag season two. And that yes, is- Yes, I was going to bring oh that up too. Oh my God. I am so, and exactly the, are you, which episode of you? Are I've you on four three. or five? I've watched three. Yeah. We just watched four. Oh my God. That show. Julia, you have to watch that show if you're not I know. It. It's so good. It's so good. Um, and then- and honestly, like truly, the Bachelorette, the Bachelorette, <laughs> which is, you know, I've I've sort of hate watched the Bachelor and the Bachelorette because my daughter drew me into it. And there's a podcast that I love, which I actually listen to the podcast even without watching the show because I love the host Juliet Littman so much. Um, bachelor Party, if you want a great Bachelor Bachelorette part podcast. But this season of the Bachelorette, there's the batch. The woman who is the Bachelorette is amazing. And the show is great, and it, it it's like a lot of the tedium and awfulness that has per, pervaded that franchise over the recent years has been with, removed because this woman who is the Bachelorette is so compelling and lively and fun and interesting and direct, and it's just a it's a joy to watch it. Ooh. And that's some summer. That is some summer TV. That sounds that was good. good. All right, I have some. The Leavers by Lisa Ko, which I've been meaning to read forever and is now 
number one on my on my nightstand or whatever it is. Um, this new book, Mostly Dead Things by Kristen Arnett, which Paul Segal, my colleague at the New York Times, just gave a glowing review to that made me want to read. The Deadwood movies on HBO, at least one of them is coming out like imminently. Um, I will watch anything to do with Deadwood. I'm really excited that most of that cast is back. That movie called Diane. GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.